live from New York. I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Window closing, a COVID warning from America's health secretary that more effort is needed. Unfriending Facebook, more big companies suspending ad spending on the site, and Taiwan's teaching. The nation's digital minister talks tackling both the virus and misinformation. It's Monday. Let's make a move. Welcome once again to First Move. I hope you all managed a safe and restful weekend. Today's show will focus on the global technologies reshaping our lives during the pandemic. So in addition to hearing from the lowdown from Taiwan, as I mentioned there, we'll also discuss the future of work with Dell's Vice Chairman Jeff Clark and why it's more important than ever to tackle the growing digital divide being created or exacerbated during this crisis. And that's escalating. There are now over 10 million confirmed cases of the virus across the globe, and we've seen more than 500,000 lives lost. India has seen eight straight days of record rises, while over in Mexico City, gradual reopening begins today despite broader virus concerns. One hopeful milestone, though, among those, more than 5 million people globally have recovered from the disease. And we should also focus on that fact, too. In the meantime, U.S. stocks were hit Friday after Texas rolled back reopening plans. In fact, some 36 U.S. states are now reporting rising cases. As you can see, futures are mixed once again this morning. What about in Europe? Well, the European Commission's Economic Sentiment Index saw its largest month-on-month rise on record last month. Remember, of course, on these things, the base that we're beginning from is pretty low. And stocks falling in Asia, I think that was a carryover from the week session that we saw on Wall Street, as I've mentioned, on Friday. For now, I think we're in a tug of war between better data as we bounce back from the lows of lockdown versus the fear of rising COVID cases and the damage that that could do to hopes of recovery at the worst prolong it. COVID-19 cases are still rising fast in many parts of the world, including Brazil, India and Mexico. Meanwhile, here in the United States, Health and Human Services Secretary Alex Azar warns time is running out to curb the spread of the virus. This is a very, very serious situation and the window is closing for us to take action and get this under control. If we don't social distance, if we don't use face coverings in settings where we can't social distance, if we don't practice appropriate personal hygiene, we're going to see spread of disease. CNN Chief Medical Correspondent Dr. Sanjay Gupta joins us now. Uh, Dr. Gupta, Sanjay, great to have you uh, on the show. But the truth is we're not doing that. And if you look across states, we're not seeing mandates to wear masks. People are going back to their lives and more and more states now are reporting rising cases. Yeah, I mean, th- th- there's no question, Julia, and, and a couple of months now have passed, uh, you know, since we were sort of looking at this in New York. The difference around the country is that you have a lot more virus that is now out there because you've had many, many states where the virus has gone uh, more unchecked. States started to reopen quickly. The virus started to spread. Uh, you're seeing younger people who are getting it. That's sort of like if you think about this as a forest fire, Julia, that, that's sort of more kindling. And I think that that's, that's what uh, the secretary is sort of uh, alluding to. If you look at the difference in the maps right now, the virus starts to spread like this. It starts to develop a certain momentum, a certain inertia 
that's what everyone's trying to avoid. We got to take the fuel out of the fire. We don't have a vaccine. We have a couple of different medicines that have some, some modest benefit. Really right now it's about just decreasing the spread. Masks and physical distancing are the way to do that. It's not a very hardy virus, Julia. You know, as scary as this has all been, the virus itself can't jump very far and a mask does a great job of preventing it from, from spreading. Problem is we're not doing that in many places. Can you give us a sense of how staggered it is? Because if we remember our experience, or for those here in New York, there was rising cases, we saw hospitalizations, we saw deaths, we got to the point where lockdown measures were the only option to try and protect what was becoming an overwhelmed medical system. Mm. What's the kind of timeline that we're looking at when we're showing that heat map and seeing differing degrees of red across the country? I, I think that uh, the, the, the timeline is, is now current, meaning that, you know, we, there's always going to be a little bit of a lag time between seeing new patients infected, hospitalizations, and then tragically deaths. The problem right now, Julia, is that many hospitals are becoming pretty full. Uh, so when you talk about the flatten the curve, you know, sort of just flatten the curve so you don't, you know, supersede the hospital's capacities, the problem is that that is starting to happen where we are uh, sort of to testing the hospital capacities again in certain places, Texas, Arizona, Florida. I mean, if that happens, you're going to run into a situation where people are saying, my loved one is here at home, I'm here with them. Uh, they're having difficulty breathing. Um, they're getting shortness of breath. And they're going to be told, hey, look, we got no hospital beds right now in the city. We got no hospital beds in the county. That is, that is obviously a tragic situation, one that everyone's trying to avoid. But you, you, we, we can't look at this in the future anymore because that timeline is right, is right now. If that starts to happen, that, start, that, that becomes a spiraling out of control sort of situation. So they've got to act on this currently. They can't wait any longer. Yeah, the time is nigh. Just wear masks. Yeah. Sanjay, great to have you with us. Thank you so much for that. Thanks, Julia. Again, thank you. Yeah, in China. 400,000 people have been placed under strict lockdown. David Culver joins us now. David, a separate area, though admittedly close to Beijing, talk to us about what we know and why this is being done. That's right, Julia. This is Anxin province. So it's uh, actually it's in Hebei province, Anxin County. It's about 90 miles from where we are. But here's what's interesting about this. I mean, we talk about these strict lockdowns and we're used to talking about it in association with Wuhan or with compartmentalized sections of Beijing, as happened in the past two weeks or so. This is 400,000 people that are now affected by this, and it's essentially a more rural area. However, they have blocked off all communities, all villages, and they're not allowing any outside non-locally registered vehicles to go into this perimeter. And inside, they're keeping people inside their homes. So something we saw, say, five months ago, beginning back in Wuhan, that ended up lasting 76 days there. And they are allowing one person each day to leave the home, to go get basic necessities. And they're saying that this is going to last as long as necessary to keep this most recent cluster outbreak under control. The problem is it's, it's not that large of a number. I mean, you're, you're talking 18, 19 cases altogether. That's the official count. Of course, that comes from the government. But that's what they're saying has provoked this. So why such an extreme reaction then? I think it goes to what we saw here in, in Beijing just a couple of weeks ago, and that was some of the officials at the Shinfadi market, which was that cluster outbreak that they're now still trying to get 
completely under control, though they feel like they have a good grip on it. Uh, they saw some of those officials be punished for that their uh, lack of, of early handling, if you will. And we've seen that in other localities as well, certainly within Wuhan and Hubei province, the original epicenter of the outbreak. Uh, officials were pushed out of their jobs quite quickly by the central government. So it may be that some of this reactive nature that's resulting in lockdowns, even with just single digit or double digit number of cases, is because of the fear from local officials that there could be repercussions if they don't act and stop the spread immediately, Julia. Yeah, it's just astonishing every time we talk to you and make some degree of comparison between what we're seeing in the United States and the behavior and the actions of um, the yeah. Chinese authorities in order to, to lock down cases. Clearly, it's a different story in China, given the, the power of the authorities. But um, yeah, it what is. can I say? David Culver, thank you so much for that update there. All right, thanks, The pandemic Julia. has claimed its biggest oil and gas bankruptcy yet. Chesapeake Energy filed for Chapter 11 protection on Sunday. John Defterius is with us with all the details. John, no real surprise. They skipped interest payments on debt. We know they've been challenged for a long while, but the yes. first of the big shale oil players to say, OK, we need help here. Yes, indeed. Chesapeake Energy is one of the pioneers in the shale basins. Uh, Julia, going back to its founding with $50,000 uh, back in 1989 by Audrey McClendon, who was a firm believer in natural gas, suffocating under $9.5 billion of debt. But for context here, it was the second largest natural gas producer in the United States behind the behemoth uh, Exxon Mobil. But it made this ill-timed move to balance out its portfolio and go into oil. Uh, that ran into lower oil prices, the Saudi-Russia price war, now COVID-19. And then you have to look at the second half of the year with the snapback of the cases you're talking about with Dr. Sanjay, the upside potential is not there, so it's very difficult to surface debt. And in fact, according to S&P, we've had 18 companies just in the first half of the, of the year go uh, bankrupt because of the debt uh, servicing challenges that they're having vis-a-vis -vis 20 throughout of, of 19, 2019. Uh, and what we're seeing here, Julia, is basically a price war. You know, we see people coming back to $40 and say that's pretty comfortable. The low-cost producers in the Middle East, those in Russia, can survive at $40 a barrel. The break-even price for a lot of these shale basins is 30 to 35. But if you're carrying debt, it's a huge burden. And in fact, Deloitte, uh, the consultancy, is suggesting uh, that many of these companies are carrying another $300 billion of debt. So this is not the last of the bankruptcies. Uh, it's extraordinary over a period of time. The founder spent $43 billion over 15 years that he really thought that natural gas was the way to go. But even natural gas has seen that downward pressure because of the lack of demand and oversupply because of that shale boom, Julia. Yeah, and no one could have predicted a pandemic. Just to your point very quickly, John, if we're talking about $300 billion mm -hmm. worth of write-downs and uh, a price level of between $30 and $35 for oil, what percent of these shale players are technically insolvent? Well, about a third, Julia, and a lot wow. of people have overlooked the fact that over the last four years, we've had 200 companies go uh, bankrupt and the debt payments are just rising because of the pressure that we're talking about. Yeah, they're very difficult times. Uh, and despite the OPEC, non-OPEC intervention, uh, we're not seeing a huge spike because of the pandemic that you're talking about. Yeah, you're going to have to lose some of those. John Defterius, thank you so much for that. Starbucks 
tells social media time to wake up and smell the coffee. The company joining a rapidly growing list of companies that say they've stopped advertising on Facebook and other platforms. Beverage giant Diageo has just announced it's doing the same too. Brian Fung joins us now. Brian, you've been doing some great reporting on this and some great writing as well. It is a pivotal moment, but it's also symbolic because of the financials of this story. Talk us through what's going on and what your view is on whether this makes change at Facebook. Yeah, absolutely. This is a massive decision by a massive brand, uh, you know, with Starbucks being the sixth largest advertiser on Facebook last year, according to Pathmatics, a uh, market intelligence firm. Uh, according to them, Starbucks spent over $95 million uh, advertising on Facebook alone. So for uh, Starbucks to be pulling back on all social media advertising now uh, could mean a dramatic impact on social media uh, companies' revenues. That said, uh, you know, when you look at Facebook, most of its revenue comes from small and medium-sized businesses. So uh, it's a big question as to whether or not you know, this social media uh, boycott or Facebook boycott by numerous brands uh, will have a, a deep and lasting impact on these companies. But at the very least, it is, as you said, a very symbolic move uh, that's raising awareness about Facebook's handling of hate speech and misinformation. Of course, Starbucks isn't the only brand here. Um, you know, in recent weeks, we've seen Verizon, Unilever, uh, Honda, Hershey, Hershey's, and Coca-Cola all get on board, uh, pulling their funding here, and uh, you know this all just goes to show how uh, what began as a very simple, kind of small-scale whisper campaign about trying to defund Facebook, has now grown to a globe-spanning. Uh, campaign that has roped in some of the world's largest brands and companies. So this is going to be uh, putting you know, a lot of pressure on Facebook to change. Whether or not it actually uh, does so is, is another question. Yes, Julia. verbal pressure, not financial pressure, when these big brands, the 100 biggest brands, only represent, what, 6% of all the advertising, the $70 billion worth that they pulled in last year. And I, I do wonder what some of these companies are going to do with the money. This is a year when you do want to retrench on advertising spending. So perhaps they're getting a, a lot of credit for uh, taking action at a moment they perhaps would have done anyway. Just asking. Brian Fung, thank you so much for that. We'll reconvene on this. All right, there are stories uh, that are making headlines around the world that I want to bring to you too. Attackers using grenades and firearms killed at least five people in an assault on the Pakistani stock exchange in Karachi. The director of the exchange says the gunmen were wearing what looked like police uniforms. The attackers were killed by security forces. Envoys from the 27 EU members are meeting to agree on a list of countries from which travellers will be allowed into the EU starting next month. Travellers from the US are not likely to be allowed in because of the rapid spread of coronavirus in many states. The so-called safe list is expected to include Australia, Canada, Japan and South Korea. All right, we're going to take a break here on First Move. But coming up, Taiwan escapes the worst of coronavirus with swift, decisive action. Find out how authorities got it right next. And they say necessity is the mother of all invention. And the pandemic certainly hit the fast forward button on technology. Here, Jeff Clark, second in command at Dell with his views on the future later in the show. That's next. Stay with us.
Welcome back to First Move, live from New York, where U.S. stocks look set for a pretty mixed open this Monday, the second to last trading day of the second quarter. The S&P currently on track for its best quarterly return in decades following the plunge, of course, in March. But nearly two in three asset managers say the COVID threat has not been sufficiently factored into markets. Investors pulled more than $7 billion out of stocks last week, sinking nearly $3 billion, meanwhile, into safe haven gold. Hmm, there's a signal in there. The Dow was the big loser, falling more than 3%. Banks, meanwhile, fell sharply on Friday after the Federal Reserve moved to cap their dividends to help the banks save cash. They're higher in pre-market trading today, though nowhere near the losses that we saw at the back end of last week. Now, when the coronavirus pandemic began, researchers at John Hopkins University forecast that Taiwan would be hit harder than anywhere in the world except mainland China. But it defied that prediction. Out of Taiwan's population of 23 million people, fewer than 500 have been diagnosed with the virus and only seven people lost their lives, even though there was no total lockdown that we've seen elsewhere in the world. The secret to its success is fast and effective action. Authorities began screening people arriving from Wuhan on December 31st. In January, the export of masks was banned and local production of protective equipment was stepped up. By the end of the month, the framework for an effective case tracking system was also put in place. Wow. Well, I'm pleased to say joining us now is Audrey Tang, Taiwan's digital minister. Minister Tang, fantastic to have you on the show. That's an incredible performance, I think, from Taiwan to put in protections for COVID faster, I think, than anywhere else in the world. Explain how what you suffered during SARS back in 2003 led you to a place where you could react so quickly. Certainly. Um, everyone above 30 years old, that includes me, uh, remembers how bad SARS was. We had to barricade an entire hospital, the Hoping Hospital, uh, and the municipal government and the central government were saying totally different things, and there was no single source of truth. Um, because of that, right after SARS, we decided that at the time 37 people dead, 37 people too many. Uh, so the constitutional court charged the parliament, um, saying that even though barricading an entire hospital unannounced was not entirely unconstitutional, we need to find a way within our constitutional law limits uh, to make sure that people do not suffer from the same invasion to freedoms uh, when the next SARS comes. So right after that, we've been doing yearly drills, and that enabled us to start countering coronavirus last year, uh, actually uh, in December 31st, uh, instead of like in many other jurisdictions, which began only this year. You literally saw on Taiwan's equivalent of Reddit, like a news agency mm -hmm. site, you saw the alarm mm -hmm. bells being rung mm -hmm. by the Chinese doctor. And it was literally that mm -hmm. that made you go, we're not waiting around, we're going to implement mm -hmm. these measures. Right, exactly, because it's upvoted uh, by people in PTT, that's our equivalent of Reddit. Uh, when Dr. Li Wenliang, uh, the PRC whistleblower, said there's seven new uh, confirmed SARS cases, that rings an alarm bell to everyone. And even though Dr. Li Wenliang eventually got inquiries uh, from his local police institutions, at the same time, uh, our medical officers were escalating it right that day. And so our medical officer immediately said, okay, the next day, which is the 1st of January, everybody flying in from Wuhan to Taiwan need to start health inspections. I mean, 
you know, sitting here in the United States and just remembering what people around the world went through, if only we'd been able to react as quickly as um, Taiwan, then many lives would have been saved. Mr. Tang, just explain your contract tracing, because you mentioned you had to get around some privacy concerns, which obviously many other nations are facing at the same time. How did you get around them? Explain how your contract tracing works. Right. We do contact tracing at the borders with a very strict but time-limited 14-day quarantine system. So if you're a returning citizen, you have two choices. You either go to a uh, quarantine hotel where you're physically prevented from leaving uh, for 14 days, or if you live in a household with no vulnerable population, then you can choose home quarantine, in which case your phone, or if you don't have a phone, we give you a phone for 14 days, uh, is put into what we call the digital fence. And digital fence doesn't collect any new data. It's not an app. It doesn't need GPS signal. It's just a cell phone tower strength uh, from your local telecom providers, which uh, about have a 50 meter or so in urban areas uh, perimeter. If your phone leaves that perimeter or if it runs out of battery, it sends an SMS uh, automatically to local household managers and police, which uh, will check your whereabouts. And if you keep that for 14 days, we pay you 33 US dollars a day for your work as a stipend. Uh, but if you break the quarantine, that's a thousand times that as a fine. Wow. So you get $33 a day for doing your part, but you get fined $33,000 if you break the rules. Exactly. Wow. So I'm assuming that people behaved. Yes, and because it's the, the rational thing to do, right? Uh, people know, because we have a single-payer universal health care system, if they develop uh, COVID or COVID-like symptoms, the logical thing is to go to a nearby pharmacy, collect a medical mask, put on the mask, go to your local clinic, because people know there will be no social or financial burden if you um, get uh, to work with the contact tracers and put yourself in home quarantine or quarantine hotel. It's, there's nothing about the culture or nothing about uh, the top-down management or whatever. It's just that incentives are designed so that people find it natural to uh, work with the medical offices. Yeah, I mean, it sounds very logical. You also created, and I think this is also crucial, a mechanism, a platform where ordinary people can speak to the government. You wanted that connection, particularly Mm -hmm. when the virus hit, for people to be able to talk directly to Mm -hmm. your health minister, for example, Mm -hmm. and to get advice. Mm -hmm. Um, I want you to tell Mm -hmm. us a story about the boy that was upset about wearing a pink mask and being bullied. Yes. Yeah, when you ration mask, uh, you don't get to choose the color. Uh, and so uh, when we start rationing the mask through our pharmacies, there are certain districts that only get pink medical masks. Uh, and there was a boy uh, who refused to go to school because he said uh, their um, you know, classmates may laugh at him for wearing pink. And because we have this hotline called 1922, everybody can just pick up their phone and call that line, and its pickup rates immediately it's around 90%. And so uh, the very next day, after people called, Everybody in the CECC daily press conference, you're seeing uh, our commander Chen Shizhong here uh, of the Central Epidemic Command Center start wearing pink medical masks, making sure that the social innovation that's gender mainstreaming uh, is um, amplified throughout the society. So people think, oh, if I have a new idea, it becomes national policy. It gets amplified to a national audience within 24 hours. Yeah, and he became cool because he was now wearing the mask that all the people that were fighting the virus. Yeah, I mean, I I do like that. Talk to me about misinformation as well, because it has been Mm -hmm. a concern for Taiwan, and you found Mm -hmm. a novel way of tackling Mm -hmm. it. Oh, yeah. 
So in Taiwan, uh, because of course it's a stressful time, people feel anxious. There's a lot of panic buying, conspiracy theories too.、Uh, and so our counter disinformation strategy is very simple to remember. It's called humor over rumor. The idea is that、uh, the rumor that says, for example,、um, we're ramping up facial mask production from two million a day to twenty million a day, is the same material.、Uh, and I quote:、uh, because, because if it's the same material as tissue paper, we're going to run out of tissue paper. Some unquote.、Uh, people just go out and、uh, panic buy tissue papers. And so you see our premier,、uh, Premier Su Zhenchang,、uh, smiling happily here.、Uh, and then. Within two hours, we roll out this social media campaign where the premier wiggles his bottom a little bit and then、uh, says in very large font, "Each of us only have one pair of botox,"、uh, and a very clear table that says, "You know, the tissue paper came from South American materials, while、uh, the PPEs, the mask, came from domestic materials." So, if you laugh about it, you get vaccinated. You cannot get outrage、uh, from the misinformation afterwards. So, because of that, the rumor died down within two days, and we found out the original、uh, people spreading it was、uh, they were persecuted. They were tissue paper resellers. Yeah, but humor over rumor, trying to、uh, make contact with people and make them understand、um, what's to be believed and what isn't.、Um, Mr. Tang, I also want to talk to you about the future for Taiwan because、mm-hmm. I、sure. mentioned it at the beginning of the interview. Had Taiwan been part of the World Health Organization, perhaps a conversation、mm-hmm. would have been had with other leaders around the world about what、mm-hmm. we were seeing and, and what we missed.、Yes. Perhaps, do you think the relationship between Taiwan and the rest of the world might evolve, particularly given the concerns over、mm-hmm. China's handling of information、yes. at the beginning、mm-hmm. of this? Definitely.、Uh, if you check out this simple website called TaiwanCanHelp.us. Taiwan can help that U.S.、Um, you will see the timeline, and you will see that the world lost、uh, at least ten days、uh, because Taiwan at that time is sounding the alarm essentially. But through the WHO, we only have very limited scientific access. Now,、uh, unless you happen to be a country where your vice president is the author of the textbook on epidemiology, as in the case of Taiwan, at that time having scientific access is not the same as having ministerial access. And so, I think、uh, right this year. Yeah. Uh, a few days before the World Health Assembly, Taiwan organizes our own、uh, virtual World Health Assembly、uh, video call with 14 different jurisdictions, and I think it was very fruitful. And we'll focus on providing help, not only donating the mask, but also the blueprints to produce those masks、uh, in your own jurisdiction, as well as the scientific technologies and know-hows、um, to make sure that everybody who wants the PPEs can get the PPEs from locally domestic materials. Yeah, it's fantastic, and I know you've been donating them as well around the world. Audrey Tang, Taiwan's digital minister, thank you so much for joining us on the show. And stay in touch, please. And plenty more to discuss in the future.、Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Live long, prosper. <laughs> Likewise. Right, the market opens next. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. stock markets are up and running again for this holiday-shortened trading week, and as expected, mostly higher open for stocks. With tech, I have to say, under a bit of relative pressure in early trading,、yeah, keeping an eye, of course, on the likes of Facebook and Twitter, with ad spending being suspended by、uh, many big companies over the weekend. Boeing. Is also giving an early session boost to the Dow. The FAA has approved test flights for the 737 Max. Flights could begin as soon as today. Meanwhile, lots on tap this week. Fed Chair Jay Powell and Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin testifying before Congress tomorrow on the COVID-19 economic response. So keep an eye out for more stimulus talk.
And on Thursday, we've got uh, the US releasing its June jobs report. Paula Monica joins me now. Paul, I described it as a tug of war earlier on the show between the bounce back in some of the data from pretty low lows versus the concerns about virus cases spiking, particularly in the United States, but also concerns elsewhere in the world as we see reopening. What does this mean for investors? Yeah, I think investors, Julia, really are trying to figure out what will happen if there is a legitimate second wave in the United States. Will you have the consumer de facto shut down the American economy, even if the government and big companies decide that they're going to still try and soldier on and maybe enforce some more stringent social distancing measures, but not necessarily shut down the economy the way we had in March. I think that's going to be the key right now. And of course, as you pointed out, we've got those jobs numbers coming out later in the week. And people, I think, are hoping that we get a continued rebound in the U.S. economy with a decent jobs number, even though the unemployment rate will remain elevated. Yeah. And we don't know what it's going to take to control the virus here. How much and to what extent those measures on terms, in terms of reopening need suspending or, or adjusting? And that could mean slower return of, of jobs, of course. Paul, I want to ask you about Facebook and some of the other social media names when we've got big consumer companies in particular like Coca-Cola, Diageo, pulling their spending from all of these platforms, not just Facebook. Do we see action, do you think? I think it's going to be fascinating to see whether or not Facebook, Mark Zuckerberg in particular, finally buckles under some of the pressure, the growing calls to really curb hate speech on the social media platforms. I think Twitter, to its credit, has done a little bit of a better job, even though it's still a lot of whack-a-mole with regards to trying to stop the spread of false information. But I think with Facebook, they really seem to be alienating a lot of people, particularly big advertisers now, by taking this stance that it's not necessarily up to them to be how they view it, maybe censoring opinions out there. But I think the question right now, Julia, is that there's one thing about having opinion and a variety of different thoughts on Facebook and other social media platforms. Misinformation, though, and hate speech, that's not opinion. So I think Facebook really needs to do a better job of showing advertisers that they take this seriously and they are not going to be an outlet for billions of people, given the amount of users they have, to see information that's flat out wrong and hateful. Oh, you mentioned such a great point. And right now, users are going nowhere, which is also an important angle here, too. Thanks to Paula Monica there. Great to have you with us. All right, for those searching for a coronavirus silver lining, we like those, if you will. Listen to the world's technology optimists who say the virus will speed up digital change with benefits to our work, our education and our health. Jeff Clark is Michael Dell's right-hand man as vice chairman and chief operating officer. He's firmly in the optimist camp. He says of Dell's 160,000 employees, 90% transition to working from home virtually overnight. The Dell portfolio goes way beyond hardware into digital infrastructure, security and cloud computing. And in part one of our exclusive interview, Jeff Clark explained Dell's response to COVID-19. Well, I'd tell you the last 100 plus days has been a very fascinating time. I think we've seen the human 
character really evolve here where we've become much more adapted to this environment. Uh, it has become the new norm. And for us, for me in particular, I'll share my experiences. I'm more connected with the workforce, our team members, our suppliers, our partners, our customers than I've ever been before. And I can do that without obviously traveling. And I can be in a meeting with a customer in the morning in Europe. I can be with a partner in the uh, late afternoon in Asia and with my team across the globe in between. And it's been a just a, a great time. We've seen productivity in our work environment, which many would think perhaps it suffered. Just the opposite, productivity's increased. When I think about the innovation engine inside our company, the core of what we do, building products and services, it's really accelerated through this. And we have just finished a really exciting cycle for us. Nine launches in the last nine weeks, all done virtually, unheard of four months ago. And that's what we're doing today. You wrote a blog and you make a fascinating observation, which is that you believe up to half of workforces that can will remain remote even post pandemic. I, I think that's exactly right. Uh, our experience is Dell has been doing what we call connected workplace, which is our remote working for over a decade now. And pre-pandemic, we had roughly 25% of our workforce working remote in some form or fashion. I easily believe when we come out of this pandemic, we'll be in excess of 50%. Probably more important is the research we've done with our customers along the journey over the past four months. And that research suggests we'll see a 20-point uplift in small business, medium business, large multinational businesses across all sectors of an uplift in their knowledge workers working from home. So this new normal is the normal of the future. And it's bringing, I think, some exciting opportunities in terms of how we operate, how we innovate, how we collaborate, and how we work with one another. And technology is at the center of that. One of the things that you observe, and I think this ties directly to this, is that when you're remote and when your workers are remote, suddenly the talent pool that you have access to becomes global. Uh, exactly. The, the way we look at it is proximity to a site or a location is not a requirement anymore. And as soon as that happens, your ability to look at the talent pool across the globe, I think just it, it accelerates. It allows you to ha uh, have access to talent pools that perhaps didn't want to move to one of your sites. Uh, people are very comfortable where they live. I think one of the opportunities this is going to bring is people will be able to live in more affordable places. Technology will allow them to enter our four walls virtually, which ultimately will give us access to more diverse talent and time. We've talked about a lot of the positive aspects here, but there's a, a huge downside here, and that is a widening digital divide. Those that have access and those that benefit from these technologies will continue to benefit, and those that don't get further left behind. How do we make sure that that digital divide doesn't widen as a result of what we've seen over the past three months? Well, the answer is we can't let that happen. Uh, what COVID-19, I think, has demonstrated is the, the, how wide that gap is. And we have to work uh, across government and business to change that dynamic. I think the work that we have to do is around how do we get access? How do we provide rural broadband to underserved communities, rural communities, 
equalizing or leveling the playing field, if you will, of that access to technology. And that's going to be key to success going forward. And I think about the opportunities. 5G is a perfect example of a technology that can be a great equalizer. We can provide that uh, that broadband broadband and connectivity to these rural communities and underserved communities and really have the bandwidth required to work in this modern world. So we were hearing there how Dell adapted to the pandemic. Vice Chairman Jeff Clark also spoke about what's around the corner for the rest of us during this digital decade. The digitalization of our world is rapidly accelerating. We see a faster movement to the, what we call the fourth industrial revolution, where we have a data-driven world. We'll see automation. We'll see the use of artificial intelligence and machine learning to build smart machines, autonomous cities, autonomous factories, autonomous hospitals, think of them as smart cities, smart hospitals, smart factories. All of this is rapidly going to develop in the next decade. And what you're going to see, in my humble opinion, is those companies who are embracing this and who embraced it early are going to have distinct advantages and we're going to see a lot of catch up. What do you see as the biggest risk here? Is it the virus and controlling the virus or clearly it's tough to separate them? The economic challenge of reopening safely and, and salvaging and supporting economic recovery? Well, I think the biggest challenge in the near term with the world scientists all working on this, the best minds, is getting a vaccine in place, getting a vaccine developed, getting it through the trials, and then being able to distribute it at scale. Uh, I think that's the biggest challenge. Uh, for society in general. And then coming out of that, I think we have to work on the inequities that are front and center in our system today. That has to be something that just can't be a COVID-19 and, and tied to that. It's got to be long-term systemic changes. And then from a business point of view, this notion of rapidly digitizing our world and looking at the good that could come out of this. I think we have an opportunity to really democratize how education is provided and how online education can provide and maybe the great equalizer, equal access to quality education mm -hmm. across the globe. I think we're going to see new evolution in medicine, whether it's preventative care or telemedicine and providing quality health care with better outcomes at lower cost to all. I think those are the real big opportunities as we look downfield, if you will, of what good can come out of this and what will accelerate out of this. All right, we're going to take a quick break here on First Move, but coming up, where Dell stands on diversity. That's next. Don't go away. Welcome back to First Move. Dell's stock has already rebounded to pre-pandemic levels, like many of the big tech giants. The firm has also taken measures to reduce costs, including some pay and pension freezes. Though Jeff Clark wouldn't be drawn on reports that Dow might be looking to reduce debt by selling its $50 billion stake in cloud software brand VMware. We don't comment on a rumor and speculation. I can tell you our strategy is unchanged. Our strategy is focused on winning in the consolidation of the core markets we serve and innovating in integrating across the Dell Technologies family of companies to build differentiated and unique solutions for our customers in this data decade that's well underway. 
It is a time when companies, though, are looking at the strength of their balance sheets, at their debt profile at this moment, at their investment outlook as well, given the uncertainties. Are you comfortable with where the company lies at this moment on all of those things? Uh, yes, ma'am. We've taken a, a series of actions through the first part of the year to strengthen our balance sheet. Uh, our capital markets folks have gone out and uh, done all the things that you would expect us to do in this marketplace. And uh, the business is a good business to be in. As I mentioned, as a technology optimist, technology is key to the economic recovery. It's never been more important, and we're in the right sector. Some of those adjustments as well, though, have meant changes for pension contributions for for workers too is that for the foreseeable future and when do you plan if not to perhaps readjust or rethink on those things well we've made a number of decisions uh, through the year to stabilize the company and put it on strong foundation those range from not hiring to not backfilling uh, headcount We've made a few decisions around the 401k that you're referencing. Uh, at the current time, our thinking is they remain intact for the remainder of, or the remainder of the year. Like many big corporations, Dell has been doing some soul searching when it comes to workplace diversity. Jeff told me they're willing to answer some difficult questions. And Michael Dell, who called George Floyd's murder an atrocity, is driving Dell's diversity conversation. Michael's been a, a, a wonderful catalyst for this as we have a, a reference of what we call standing strong together, which is an opportunity or getting our team together. We are doing uh, what we think we need to do in this situation, which is listen, having those uncomfortable conversations that perhaps didn't exist before. We are now having those on a consistent basis. And the standing strong together really is about a program where we create a rich and inclusive uh, community for all team members. And we want a diverse workforce who can be their very best at Dell. And that's what we strive to do. We've made a lot of progress over the past two decades doing that. We'll make progress tomorrow. We're not done next week, next quarter, and so on. Another component of that is getting, providing access to technology in the communities that we operate in, uh, providing the skills required to come into our company and how do we really help communities encourage STEM education and allowing people to be prepared or enabling people to be prepared for much of what we talked about today, this new digital world that we operate in. Time for uncomfortable conversations. All right, after the break, we turn from big business to the survival battle being fought by many far smaller ones. We're off to Mexico next. Welcome back to the show. Latin America is seeing a huge spike in coronavirus cases, with Mexico reporting more than 4,000 new infections on Sunday alone. It's a worry as businesses reopen, and as Matt Rivers reports, some won't come back at all. Lines out the door usually mean a business is thriving, except this one, the Atraves del Espejo bookstore in Mexico City, is dying. Pues Owner Selva Hernandez says the truth is, we're really sad. 
Her mom first opened the shop back in 95, and for 25 years, it survived earthquakes and recessions and Amazon Kindles. But the pandemic proved too much when the government shut down the economy. It's a bookstore, she says. We don't make a lot of money normally. Then we had to close, which means we couldn't pay rent, so the owner asked us to leave. Her story is as tragic as anything you'd find on her shelves, but among small business in this city, it is a familiar narrative. One local chamber of commerce estimates of the roughly 400,000 small businesses here, some 40% won't survive, forcing more than 1 million people out of a job. A short walk from the bookstore, keeping people employed and a neighborhood well-fed has turned into a mantra of sorts at Expendio de Maiz. They've managed to stay open during the crisis, just. Chef Ana Gonzalez says, I see so many places closed and I just feel fortunate I still have work right now. Sales are way down, and they've all taken big pay cuts. And even as the economy is starting to reopen, they're not sure what that looks like. Day by day, people have less money, says co-owner Jesus Tornes. Even if they open everything, if there's no demand, it won't matter. This year is rough. But they know it's rough for everyone, and good food helps, so they're determined to try and see it through. A good book can also help, which is why Selva slashed prices and invited people in one last time. She says the closing doesn't feel real. I am happy to see so many people coming to say goodbye, she says. It's a nice tribute because my mom loved for books to be cheap and accessible to everyone. Her mom's chosen name for the shop, A Través del Espejo, means through the looking glass, a literary reference to an imagined world. It's an apt name these days, with the real world so different than it was before. Matt Rivers, CNN, Mexico City. Through the looking glass. All right, that's it for the show. I'm Julia Chatterley. Stay safe, and I'll see you tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.